Waiting is hard. Waiting is especially hard when you're going through a difficult time, when you're going through a hard time. And waiting is hard when you are waiting for something that is supposed to be so good, when your future is supposed to be so promising. Once I get through this period, everything's going to be good. Christian life is like that. We're waiting through difficult times. And we're waiting for a glorious future. What I hope you'll see today is that everything is worth the wait. It's worth persevering through the difficult times that the Christian life often is filled with. It's worth it to make it all the way to the end to receive what the inheritance that God has for us. Today we're going to be in Daniel 10. Daniel 10. What I want you to see first is is a heavenly conflict. This, uh, these chapters, 10 through 12, are about, about the, a great conflict. We're going to look at heavenly conflict first. Heavenly conflict. Start in Daniel 10. Me in Daniel 10. Start in verse 1, and we'll read through the first verse of chapter 11. Daniel 10, starting with verse 1. This is what it says. In the third year... Of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed, clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his voice like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have, sent to you, I have been sent to you. And when he hadn't spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I've come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. 
But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. But you see that this is happening in the third year of Cyrus. That's significant because in the first year of Cyrus, uh, Cyrus had made a decree. Cyrus is the, the king of the Persian kingdom. And he had said, the Jews can go back home. They can go back to the promised land. Uh, the only problem was is that after a couple of years, it had become clear that not very many people were going back to Jerusalem. Not very many people were going back to the promised land. And those people who were going back to the promised land, it was not easy. Uh, they were trying to scrape together a living. They were hoping to go back and see all these things that had been prophesied by the prophets about the, the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple and, uh, and the great coming again of a, of a Davidic king. And, and all these things were supposed to happen. And they're going back and they're, they're uh, build the foundation, but they don't keep going after that. They just, they're trying to keep, stay alive. That's the reason why Daniel is fasting. He's probably heard the news about uh, the people who had gone back to Jerusalem. He's heard about how difficult it is uh, for them. And so he is fasting and praying. He goes, says he goes without delicacies, or without meat. So he's basically living on the same type of subsistence, uh, I'm sorry, subsistence uh, uh, diet that they were living on back in Jerusalem. He is identifying with them. He can't, he can't eat really, really good things while his people are suffering in a faraway land. He's also not anointing his body or using lotions. You know, he's living in a dry uh, desert climate, uh, but he's, not, he's, he's abstaining from all the comforts of life because he knows that the people who are back in Jerusalem are suffering. Daniel probably didn't go back because he was already well into his 80s by this time. So he is there. He's, he's been fasting and and then it says on the 24th day of the first month, this is still during the time of the Passover, during the, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's even fasting during the festival, during the time of feasting. But then he has a vision. And the vision is terrifying. He, he sees it. Uh, he's not to the ground. He's not unconscious there. There we talked about his deep sleep with his face to the ground. It means he went face first into the ground. Uh, it's because he saw a vision of an angel, an angelic messenger warrior from God was sent to him. And, the, and, and this is, he's wrapped in linen. That's kind of a picture of a, a priestly type figure. He is one who is in the presence of God. He has this gold belt, gold sash around his, around his waist. That's nothing compared to the, the flashing and flaming of his body. I mean, the, the whole picture there, that barrel, that's kind of a yellowish brown uh, flashing. Uh, everything is this, this great brightness to his body. And he comes and he stands and, and he, is, he knocks Daniel to the ground. The other men who are with Daniel, they don't see the vision, uh, but they are nevertheless terrified. They run away, they run and hide, they go and try and find something uh, to, to get under because this is what it's like when you are in the presence of one of God's uh, angels. Now these are, uh, God's angels always bear the marks of God's glory. And so there is this kind of, there is this kind of bringing into, his, into uh, Daniel's sight this, this picture of God's glory. And there is this roaring voice uh, from, the, from the angel, this, uh, this roar of many waters, like standing next to uh, Niagara Falls or something like that. This is what it's like to hear this, uh, this soldier speak. And so he comes to Daniel and... and uh, Three times in the chapter, he does a little bit of angelic first aid. Okay, so Daniel can't stand up on his own. So the, the angel touches him. 
and uh, he's able to get up on his hands and knees. He's still kind of groveling in the dirt. Uh, and then he, he gets him to stand up. He says, I've got something to tell you. This is what I want you to know, Daniel. From the first day that you started to pray, God heard you. And God sent, sent me out. And then there's something happening here where, where we kind of get the, uh, the curtain pulled back on reality. That there is an immaterial reality. There is, the, there is the material reality that we see and that we touch. Those things that are tangible to us. But there's also a reality that is immaterial. There are angelic and demonic forces at, at work facing one another, fighting one another in an immaterial realm. And so the, the angel there says, I, I was detained by the prince of Persia. What he means by that is, uh, is an evil spiritual being, a demonic ruler or warrior who is in some way associated with uh, the kingdom of Persia. And so he keeps back. He keeps him back for, for 21 days until Michael. Michael is this uh, archangel or, or prince or leader uh, of, the, of the forces. He comes and helps. He's the one who is sort of the, the, patron, uh, the patron angel of God's people, the one who watches over them. Has a special, special role of being over God's uh, special forces. And so he came and helped me, and, and then I came to you. And so he says, I, I've gotten, I've gotten, I want to get you up on your feet so that you can understand what's about to happen. I'm going to explain to you, I, I'm about to go fight the prince of Persia. Then there's going to be the prince of Greece is to come. So there, there are demonic forces that are attached to these, to these beastly kingdoms that we've read about before. We have the beastly kingdom of, of Persia and this beastly kingdom of, of Greece. Or you have the, 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 uh, the ram and you have the shaggy goat. And you have these, you have these pictures of these, these kingdoms that are going to take over the world. Well, well, what we see here is that these kingdoms, they're just what we see. But there are forces animating those kingdoms, those beastly type kingdom, kingdoms that we don't see. And he says, I've come to tell you about what's going to happen to your people. What's going to happen to your people in the latter days? That is, in the time of the future. What, whatever, from, the, from basically in, in this vision, it's going to be from Daniel's time all the way up until the very end. I'm going to tell you everything that's about to happen. And so the, the angel picks him up on his feet. He says, hey, here it is. I'm about to tell you. Now he's ready to receive the vision. It's a really long introduction uh, to this vision that we haven't even gotten to yet. But there's a reason for it. What it tells us and what it reveals to us is that it's not just we've, we've, we've looked at these visions of these kingdoms. They're going to be going back and forth. But it's not just those kingdoms. That's not, in fact, that's not really even where the real war is. The real war is a spiritual war. It's a war between the, the forces of, of God and the forces of evil who are opposed to, get to God. And what we find out about these forces, about angels, what we find out is that God responds to our prayers. When you pray... God hears in the name of Jesus Christ. And what the angel assures Daniel of is that God heard you from the very first day. He calls him the, you are greatly loved. Literally, that is God is, God is jealous for you. God covets you. God, God is concerned about you. 
these, these 21 days that you fasted and prayed, I don't want you to think that you fasted and prayed because God didn't hear you. God heard you from the very first day. God, this, these spiritual realities, God responds to your prayers. We don't always get a visible answer the way that Daniel does here. That doesn't mean that God's not doing exactly what he does for Daniel here. When you pray, God begins to work. When you pray, God hears your prayer. When, God, when you pray, God responds to your prayers. When you pray, God sends out his army, his soldiers, his angels to accomplish his will. We also know that Jesus came to win this battle. This is the real battle, and this is what Jesus won for us. Listen to what, uh, what Colossians 2.15 says. It says, Through the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Think about what Jesus came to do. When Jesus comes, he goes out into the wilderness. The wilderness is the domain of Satan. He interacts with Satan, and he defeats Satan on his own turf. What does it mean that Jesus went around casting out demons? They, they see Jesus coming and say, we know who you are, the Holy One of God, the Holy One of Israel. And Jesus casts them out. Jesus throws them into the abyss. Jesus has power over them. This is the real battle. That's why Jesus says to Peter when he's being arrested, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know that I could call down 12 legions, 70-something thousand angels could come and be right at my side right now if that's what I wanted? But that was not God's plan. God's plan was for Jesus Christ to go to the cross. And at the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. At the cross, Jesus won the decisive battle over Satan and his forces. Now then, though the, the, the decisive battle has been won, that doesn't mean that all of the fighting is over. That's why we read in Ephesians 6. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. I'm not going to unpack everything that's in those verses there. But Paul says the real battle is not against flesh and blood. Certainly there are human beings involved. There are human beings involved in the kingdom of Persia. There are human beings involved in the kingdom of Greece. And we're going to read about human beings that are, are uh, Satan's instruments. But the war is not mainly against them. It's mainly against spiritual realities. He says the way to do battle is to arm yourself. Salvation, righteousness, faith, truth. And to make war by means of the word of God and prayer. 
You know, we typically think of prayer as the last resort. When it is the primary weapon. It is the way that God has determined that we would win. God, God always hears our prayers. God responds to our prayers. God can do anything and he always does the right thing. So we pray. We ask God, please help. And we expect that he's going to come and he's going to win over and over and over again. God is going to act for us. So let us be like Daniel and pray. Now, you look here and you see that there, this is a really important passage, okay? There's a reason why there's an entire chapter devoted to, hey, I want to pull back and I want you to see everything that's happening behind the scenes. It's the reason why that's there, so that we'll know about that. We'll know that God responds to our prayers. We'll know about this spiritual battle that is happening in the heavenlies. At the same time, we shouldn't give in to speculation about these types of things. It's good that we should know about the work that God is doing through his angelic warriors. But there's no, there are no instructions here about praying against territorial spirits. There's, I mean, there's nothing in there about Daniel was praying specifically against the, the prince of Persia. Uh, he, we're, not, we're not giving any kind of detailed information in the scriptures about angelic hierarchies. Uh, we're not uh, taught, uh, you don't see in any of the Paul coming to the end of any of his letters and saying, hey, before I finish, uh, I've just talked to you about how to pray, and now I want to tell you about how to uh, rebuke demons. He doesn't, he doesn't speak that way. The weapon is prayer. You pray to the Father. You pray to God. And God takes care of the rest. And so that the, there's, no, uh, there's no kind of... Uh, encouragement there to kind of speculate or to go beyond what the scriptures say. And that's just what I want to, I want, uh, we need to know this because it's in the scriptures. We do not need to go beyond this because it's not in the scriptures. And so uh, that, that's just a, a little caution there before we move to the next part. We've seen this conflict in the heavenlies, this heavenly conflict. Next we see the earthly conflict that comes out of that. Now we're going to pick up in chapter 11, uh, verse 2. Uh, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize for you these first uh, 19 verses, or first 18 verses, verses 2 through 19. What happens in verses 2 through 35 is there's, there's, there's this picture of everything that's going to happen among people, uh, to God's people, to the Jews who are going back to the land. But let me just summarize verses, uh, this is verses 2 through 4, and verses 2 through 4, the fourth king after Cyrus is Xerxes, the wealthiest of the kings. He is the one who stirs up the Greeks by invading Greece, where he is defeated at Salamis. Then Alexander the Great comes and conquers, but no sooner does he come to power than he dies, and the kingdom does not go to his children, but to the four of his generals. That covers about 150 years. Okay? Then we'll look at 150 more years. Verses 5 and 6 begin to focus on the promised land. The king of the south. So remember, we're, we're looking at the king of the south from the perspective of the promised land. So the king of the south is the kingdom associated with Egypt, and the king of the north is the kingdom entered, uh, centered in Syria and Babylon. The southern kingdom under the Ptolemies initially has the upper hand, but after serving under Ptolemy for a period, Seleucid rules the kingdom north of Israel. A later king from the south tries to make an alliance by offering his daughter as a bride to the king of the north, Antiochus II. Antiochus II divorced his wife to marry Bernice, but he went back to his earlier wife, Laodice, who poisoned her husband. 
Bernice and Bernice's son so that her own son could reign. If you go and look at those verses 6, incredible detail there about this is all, this is all Daniel receiving a vision of what's going to happen for the next 300 years from about the 6th century, the middle of the 6th century B.C. to the middle of the 2nd century B.C. Then you pick up in verses 7 through 9, it says in verses 7 through 9, the Ptolemaic king from the south avenges his sister Bernice by invading the north and carrying off the gods and goods uh, from the promised land. Verses 10 through 12, Antiochus III, also known as Antiochus the Great, takes a great army down to Egypt to attack. Though the northern army is huge and there's a huge battle, the Ptolemaic kingdom of the south is able to defend themselves. Then in verses 13 through 15, Antiochus III again raises another army. The Jews favor Antiochus, so the Ptolemaic kingdom from the south comes and punishes the Jews. Then Antiochus from the north comes and takes the great city of Sidon. Then in verses 16 through 19, Antiochus takes control of the glorious land, the promised land. Antiochus the Great gives his daughter Cleopatra as a bride to the Ptolemaic king in Egypt in order to form an alliance. But uh, that fails because Cleopatra likes her husband better than her father. Antiochus the Great tries to take some of the Greek coastland islands, but he is defeated by Roman and Greek troops. He eventually is killed while robbing a temple. That's another 150 years. So try to summarize that for you. What, what is that about? What does that mean? Why is that? Why do we need to know all those things? I think one thing it shows us is that God is the author of history. God, God knows the end from the beginning. God is the God over all of these things, over all of these kingdoms, all of these great men who are rising up, Xerxes and uh, Alexander the Great and all these, all these smaller kings who are going back and forth, going back and forth. God rules all these things. The reason why God knows the future is because God rules the future. It should give comfort to his people in all times. The other thing that you see here is uh, an illustration of what Jesus meant when he said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. This is the slow grind of history. Now, we may hear about these 300 years and think, oh, it's the king of the north and the king of the south. I don't even even care about the king of the north. I don't care about the king of the south. Well, let me tell you what. You would care if the king of the north and the king of the south and you were in the middle. You would care a lot. Well, there are real people living in this time. They're really suffering. They're living with the slow grind of history. While God's people get batted back and forth. Jesus said there will be wars and rumors of wars. That means that there might be years and decades and centuries in which we would live and it would just be the continuation of things the way they've always been. Of these, the futility of these men going back and forth. You, you notice that none of these, none of these great men, they would have been great men at the time, none of them actually accomplishes anything. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. It's always, it's always, you look, look through there when you read the verses, it's always, but this happened. So this king did this, but this happened. Raising these great big armies, but then failing. We need this great encouragement. We're, we might live in these times. Live in times like these times, and we should be prepared to patiently endure and to trust God all the way to the end. 
All right, then you pick up in verse 20, and then we begin to focus in on a, a, a particular king from uh, this northern kingdom, okay? The, king, uh, the kingdom north of the glorious land. At the end of verse 19, that's actually when the Seleucid kingdom uh, takes control of the glorious land, takes control of the promised land. So we're kind of being brought close to, hey, now we're going to see what happens with God's people. And so you pick up reading in verse 20, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. It says, Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, for within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person of whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He just shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, army but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same time, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. It shall be not be uh, this time as it was before for the ships of Kittim. Shall come against him, and he shall be afraid, and withdraw, and shall turn back, and be enraged, and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back, and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear, and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder, when they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and uh, all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. 
and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Well, the one who comes after Antiochus III, or Antiochus the Great, is his son. His son tries to get this royal tax collector to go and collect taxes to send back to the Roman government. Uh, they have been, uh, they, they have to pay tribute to them. But uh, he is killed. And so there is this contemptible person uh, who is known as Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes. He's also the little horn. Uh, that we talked about when we looked at Daniel chapter 8. Well, he comes in, and, and what he does, he borrows an army, uh, and he comes in, and he flatters and bribes, and uh, all the people of the land, he comes in and takes over, and he begins to reign. And you can see there, there, there are some things that happen. He takes up a, a lot of, uh, makes a big army, and he goes down into uh, Egypt, and he fights against uh, Ptolemy. I think this is Ptolemy the sixth by this time. So, uh, so Ptolemy, and he's fighting Ptolemy, and, and Ptolemy has this great big army, but, uh, but Ptolemy uh, has these, uh, is, is uh, mainly everything is being run by his advisors, that is, those who eat at his table, and they undermine his leadership. Uh, now, eventually, when it comes down to it, uh, the king of the Ptolemy Empire and Antiochus Epiphanes are sitting across the, the table from one another, doing diplomacy. That's where it's talking about they're lying to one another. Uh, they're telling each other things that they're not really going to do. I'm sure that never happens in real diplomacy, but it happens here. And so they're, they're doing that. And then later on, there's another time, okay? So Antiochus Epiphanes goes back to the promised land, rules in, in his empire or his kingdom. Uh, and he gets another big army, comes down. But this time, he is uh, met by the ships of Katim. That's the Roman ar- army. Uh, and that's, that's enough to set him back on his heels. He's actually confronted by Linnaeus, who is the Roman commander. Uh, and Antiochus says, hey, before I, before I let, me, let me think about things a little bit. Uh, and that is when, uh, famously, at least among uh, historians of the ancient Near East, that the, the Roman commander draws a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes and says, uh, you make your decision before you step outside that circle. And Antiochus, at that point, has to go back. Well, at this point, he think about a man who is this prideful and uh, crazy and insane. Uh, he goes back, and his rage is turned toward the Jews. And he tries to force the Jews to become like Greeks. Uh, and this is that period where he sets up the abomination of desolation. That is, at, at this time, it was literally a meteorite that was set on the altar in honor to uh, the Syrian form of Zeus. And he forbids the people to read the scriptures. He forbids them to be circumcised or observe the Sabbath. He cuts off all the burnt offerings. He does everything he can to systematically destroy the Jewish people, make them lose their identity entirely. You can see that he, he seduces or he, he tricks many of the people. And we know from this time, from the, the, record, the records that we have in history, that many of the people uh, turned over his side, that many of the Jews joined him. Uh, They actually joined with him, building a gymnasium, a Greek gymnasium in the city, which would have been something that would be uh, horrible for the Jews. But then there are some who remain faithful. Maybe you've heard of this. It's called the Maccabean Rebellion. Uh, At that point, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, he does away with the high priest, Onias III. He puts in his own high priest. 
uh, one who supports him. Eventually, he puts in a high priest who's not even from the, from the priestly uh, line. And, uh, well, the, the Maccabees, uh, those who are led by Judas Maccabeus, the Hebrew hammer, okay, that his last name means hammer, or he's called the hammer, he fights. You can see there, there's, there are many of them who, who stumble. As you look at verse 35, some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. That is, until this period is over. Okay, so far, this is what we have from all of this. God uses this period of persecution and tribulation to refine his people, to make it clear who is really of his people. You know, it's, it's persecution shows who really believes in Jesus Christ. When, when Antiochus Epiphanes, he comes in seducing, he comes in persecuting, he comes in and he says, you can, either, you can either become a Greek and live, or you can stay a Jew and die. And a lot of them decided to join with Antiochus. And some others said, no, we will, we will maintain our fidelity, our faithfulness to God. And when we think about the times of persecution, even like what we memorize uh, today and what we read about in some place like 1 Peter 1, the purpose of persecution is for the refining of your faith, or as it is here, the refining of God's people. When persecution comes, those who are not really Christians, they stop being Christians. And those who are really Christians keep on being Christians, whatever the cost is. That's what we know so far. Now pick up, up in verse 36, and there's no... Starting in verse 36, that all, if, you, if you go back and you look at the, the history behind verses uh, 1 through 35 or 2 through 35, there is incredible detail and um, uh, syncing up between history and what is in the vision. Well, then you move into verses 36, and these are things that, that it sounds like Antiochus. There's no real clear there's no real clear break where, the, hey, we're moving from Antiochus to another king of some other sort. But the way that this king is described in verses 36 through 45 is, is much more exalted, much bigger than Antiochus. Antiochus never went down to Egypt and moved through and, and overflowed into all lands and took over all these countries. He never magnified himself up above all gods the way that this king does in verses 36 through 45. He, he, uh, this, this king in verses 36 through 45 is one who uh, gives himself to the God of fortresses. That means that his idea is not serving any other God. His idea of God is might is right. He gives himself to military strength entirely. And so he goes through these lands and he's crushing these people. And he is crushing the people of God. He's pushing them and and he, he, is, he is causing some to apostatize. Uh, you read about in, in um, uh, Second Thessalonians about there must be the great apostasy before the end. That's the picture of what's happening. There are going to be many that when the persecution comes, they quit being Christians. They're, they're Christians in name only. And so he goes through, and, and you see there in verses 40 through 45, there are, there are kings who come up against him, but he just wipes through all of them until there are only these, these kingdoms left, that the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites, these are the, these are the traditional enemies of the nation of Israel. When, when 
prophetic visions are given, the, the visions are given in terms of the present at which they were given. So, for instance, uh, some prophets talk about the future, the future restoration of God's people. And they talk about, hey, everybody's going to have their own vine and sit under their own fig tree. Well, most of us don't have vineyards or orchards. Uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean we're all going to have vineyards and orchards. We might, I don't know. But it doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that. It means that, hey, whatever an Israelite would have thought as the best, that's the way it's described in the vision. This is the counterpart to that. Whatever you would think of as the worst, that's what's described here. And so Antiochus, this, this king, the Antiochus Epiphanes, this king who tries to systematically uh, squash the people of God, he is the pattern or the picture, or you might know this word, the type, or uh, you could think of it as the template for what we would think of as the Antichrist, the final Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, this last king who is going to come against God's people. He's going to try and crush their identity. He's going to try and wipe out their identity of themselves. This is sometimes what's called uh, telescoping, prophetic, prophetic foresight. That is, prophets don't always see the distance between events. But here is this greater king, this great king who's like Antiochus, but he's worse. And so he comes, and, and then it says he hears some news, and he goes out to fight, and then it's the end. Think about this. The, the great, you've seen all these great men. We've talked about, in the book of Daniel, we've talked about Nebuchadnezzar. We're reading through the book of Exodus. We've read about Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Xerxes, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Alexander the Great, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Here we are, the final antichrist, man of lawless grace, man on the face of the earth. Military might like nobody's ever seen, crushing people. Just fades out with a whimper. 2 Thessalonians 2 says that Jesus Christ will come and blow him away with the, with the breath of his mouth. The same way that God spoke creation into being, he'll just speak the end to the Antichrist, to the man of lawlessness. Now then, let's read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 12. It says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But that, at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. That is, when the time is right. When it comes to the end, after the people of God have been suffering. That's when God sends his angels. Jesus even talked about this. Matthew 13 talks about, at the end, the angels going and, and, and being like reapers. They reap everybody in. And they burn the shaft and bring the wheat into the barn. They throw away the, the worthless fish and they bring the, the good fish into, uh, into uh, back home. This is, this is Michael. Michael, the, the leader of God's uh, armies. There's going to be a time of trouble. 
worse than Antiochus, worse than any other period. But then God is going to deliver them. In and through and all the way to the end, God delivers his people through persecution, through difficulty, through trial. Everybody whose name is found written in the book. Many of you maybe have heard about the book of life from the book of Revelation. That is, everyone who has chosen of God, everyone who has put their trust in Jesus Christ, everybody who's been redeemed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, everyone who has been granted the spirit of Jesus Christ, everybody who has trusted in Jesus Christ is going to be saved, is going to be delivered. And you talk about, you see there the, the resurrection, those who sleep in the dust, those who are dead. Some will be raised, those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, those who are, have their, their name written in the book of life. They're raised to everlasting life. Those who oppose God's people, those who persecuted God's people, those who rejected Jesus Christ. They have eternal shame and contempt. Think about this, okay? This is, this is where this all comes together. What is it that makes it worth going through all these difficult times. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 19, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's talking there about the resurrection. Christians are not, cannot live for this world. This world is not our home. It is not our destiny. This is, a, this is a pilgrimage, this is a, an exile, this is a wilderness, this is a waiting period. What makes it all worth it is resurrection. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to live forever. And when he returns, we will be raised with him to live forever. To shine, he talks about those who are who are the wise, or those who, who turn people to wisdom, or those who, who do what is right, will, will shine like stars in the heavens. Think about that angel in chapter 10, that, that kind of flashing, flaming figure who, is, who has the, the glory of God in him. It's not an accident that, that the, the time of our, our resurrection is, is also spoken of as our glorification. We will in some way share the glory of God. We will have these indestructible, uh, powerful, uh, restored human bodies. That's what the resurrection is. And so I want you to hear again what Paul says. He says this in Romans 8, 18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be, uh, that is to be revealed to us. However bad it ever gets, in our lifetime or any other lifetime, it's worth remaining faithful to Jesus Christ. It's worth it. Whatever God, whatever you have to give up, whatever is taken away from you because of your faith in Jesus Christ, it's worth it. When the, the angel tells Daniel, shut these things up, seal these things up. Uh, that doesn't mean that he's trying to get rid of it. He is, uh, th this is an act to preserve what is said here to Daniel for that generation that's going to come who's going to go through these things. 
That includes the generation that would go through these things in the promised land. I think it includes us who would go through these things all the way up until the resurrection. That idea there where it talks about many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Uh, that is an echo of Amos 8, 11 and 12. That's where God, through the, the prophet Amos, says, hey, there's going to be a famine of the word of God in the land. People are going to run around looking for answers. They're going to want to know why all these things are happening. And they won't understand. They won't look for the word of God. They won't be able to listen to the prophetic word. They won't listen to the scriptures. But the wise will. The wise will know. Those who are looking for the return of Jesus Christ will know and understand and believe. All right, well, that's the heavenly conflict and the earthly conflict. The next question is, how long? And that's probably what you're thinking about this sermon. But So we'll look at verses 5 through 13, and we'll answer the question, how long? This is what it says. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest. And shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Well, here he hears these two angelic beings speaking. And one of them asks what we all want to know. How long? And that's when the angel does something that is uh, somewhat unprecedented in the scriptures. He raises both hands to heaven and he vows or he makes an oath. It will be time, times, and half a time. As we looked at before, this is this time of, of in, increasing persecution, developing persecution, but then the time of, of trial or tribulation is cut short. Then he says, and then look at what Daniel, Daniel wants to know, but no, 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 but really, how long? Uh, really? And what does the angel say? He says, go your way. Hey, that, Daniel, you don't need to know. I'm not telling you. You know, everybody, nobody wants to know about historical dates. You know, I summarize verses 2 through 19 because, man, it might be interesting to some people, but some people don't like history. They don't care when Xerxes was defeated at Salamis, you know. They don't care. But everybody wants to know future dates. What, what the angel says is, is, I'm not giving you a date. It'll be 1,290 days, that's about three and a half years. That's about the period that Antiochus would, would persecute the people of God. That's why that three and a half years kind of comes, becomes symbolic. Uh, takes, on this, takes on this idea of, hey, this is a period of not, not complete destruction, but a period of persecution in which it's cut off. He it says it's going to, and then if you make it to the 1,335 days, 
All right, so he says it's not going to end until the, until the strength or the power of God's people are shattered. That is, when it looks like it cannot get any worse, when it looks like the church will cease to exist, that's when the end comes. And I want you to just keep going a little bit further. When you think you cannot go any longer, keep going. And then he says to Daniel, you just wait. At the end, you're going to stand in your place. You're going to have rest. Daniel's been in exile his in, almost his entire life. He can't rest. People who are separated from God can't rest. The promise of Jesus Christ is that, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or the rest, rest from Jesus Christ does not mean that you're not going to go through difficulty. But it means that if you make it all the way to the end, you'll stand in your spot and you'll have rest. That's what Jesus Christ secured for us. That's what Jesus Christ promises those who will make it, who will trust in him. So let us trust in him. Let us persevere in prayer and faithfulness the way that Daniel did all throughout this period of exile. Let us continue to pray and know that God is acting on our behalf. That God is, God is, God is making us strong when we come to face the, 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 the great men of the world. And they say, hey, bow down to me or I'm going to burn you. Bow down, bow down to this image. Stop praying or I'm going to throw you in the lion's den. We're going to say no. We don't know if God's going to deliver us from this fire, but it doesn't matter. We're going to stay faithful to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what this book is about. I want you to be strong all the way to the end. God's word has been given to us so that we would stay strong all the way to the end. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has disarmed Satan. He has disarmed evil. He has overcome. And we will overcome through faith in him. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, thank you for your word. A firm foundation for us so that we would not uh, be blown this way and that by every wind of doctrine. So that we would not uh, fall for the enticements of the world. But instead we would remain pure. And we ask that you would even, even still purify us more. That you would use the trials of our lives to make us steadfast. That you would make us perfect and complete. That we would be found faithful at the return of Jesus Christ. Amen.